of Human Bondage by William Somerset Maugham, Chapter 33, Segment 1. Philip could not get Miss Wilkinson's story out of his head. It was clear enough what she meant, even though she cut it short, and he was a little shocked. That sort of thing was all very well for married women. He had read enough French novels to know that in France it was indeed the rule. But Miss Wilkinson was English and unmarried. Her father was a clergyman. Then it struck him that the art student probably was neither the first nor the last of her lovers, and he gasped. He had never looked upon Miss Wilkinson like that. It seemed incredible that anyone should make love to her. In his ingenuousness, he doubted her story as little as he doubted what he read in books, and he was angry that such wonderful things never happened to him. It was humiliating that if Miss Wilkinson insisted upon his telling her of his adventures in Heidelberg, that he would have nothing to tell. It was true that he had some power of invention, but he was not sure whether he could persuade her that he was steeped in vice. Women were full of intuition. He had read that, and she might easily discover that he was fibbing. He blushed scarlet as he thought of her laughing up her sleeve. Miss Wilkinson played the piano and sang in a rather tired voice, but her songs, Massenet, Benjamin Goddard, and Augusta Holmes were new to Philip, and together they spent many hours at the piano. One day she wondered if he had a voice and insisted on trying it. She told him he had a pleasant baritone and offered to give him lessons. At first, with his usual bashfulness, he refused, but she insisted, and then every morning at a convenient time after breakfast, she gave him an hour's lesson. She had a natural gift for teaching, and it was clear that she was an excellent governess. She had method and firmness, though her French accent was so much a part of her that it remained, all the mellifluousness of her manner left her when she was engaged in teaching. She put up with no nonsense. Her voice became a little peremptory. She instinctively suppressed inattention and corrected slovenliness. She knew what she was about and put Philip to scales and exercises. End of segment one. Chapter 33, Segment 2 When the lesson was over, she resumed without effort her seductive smiles. Her voice became again soft and winning, but Philip could not so easily put away the pupil as she the pedagogue. And this impression conflicted with the feelings her stories had aroused in him. He looked at her more narrowly. He liked her much better in the evening than in the morning. In the morning, she was rather lined, and the skin of her neck was just a little rough. He wished she would hide it, but the weather was very warm just then, and she wore blouses which were low-cut. She was very fond of white. In the morning, it did not suit her. At night, she often looked very attractive. She put on a gown which is almost a dinner dress, and she wore a chain of garnets around her neck. The lace about her bosom and at her elbows gave her a pleasant softness, and the scent she wore, at Blackstable no one used anything but eau de cologne, and that only on Sundays or when suffering from a sick headache, 
was troubling and exotic. She really looked very young then. Philip was much exercised over her age. He added 20 and 17 together and could not bring them to a satisfactory total. He asked Aunt Louisa more than once why she thought Miss Wilkinson was 37. She didn't look more than 30, and everyone knew that foreigners aged more rapidly than English women. Miss Wilkinson had lived so long abroad that she might almost be called a foreigner. She personally wouldn't have thought her more than 26. She's more than that, said Aunt Louisa. Philip did not believe in the accuracy of the Carey statements. All they distinctly remembered was that Miss Wilkinson had not got her hair up the last time they saw her in Lincolnshire. Well, she might have been twelve then. It was so long ago, and the vicar was always so unreliable. They said it was twenty years ago, but people used round figures, and it was just as likely to be eighteen years or seventeen. Seventeen and twelve were only twenty-nine, and hang it all, that wasn't old, was it? Cleopatra was forty-eight when Antony threw away the world for her sake. End of segment two. Chapter 33, Segment 3 It was a fine summer. Day after day was hot and cloudless, but the heat was tempered by the neighborhood of the sea, and there was a pleasant exhilaration in the air, so that one was excited and not oppressed by the August sunshine. There was a pond in the garden in which a fountain played. Water lilies grew in it, and goldfish sunned themselves on the surface. Philip and Miss Wilkinson used to take rugs and cushions there after dinner and lie on the lawn in the shade of a tall hedge of roses. They talked and read all afternoon. They smoked cigarettes, which the vicar did not allow in the house. He thought smoking a disgusting habit and used frequently to say that it was disgraceful for anyone to grow a slave to a habit. He forgot that he himself was a slave to afternoon tea. One day, Miss Wilkinson gave Philip La Vie de Bohème. She had found it by accident when she was rummaging among the books in the vicar's study. It had been bought in a lot with something Mr. Carey wanted and had remained undiscovered for ten years. Philip began to read Murger's fascinating, ill-written, absurd masterpiece and fell at once under its spell. His soul danced with joy at that picture of starvation which is so good-humored of squalor which is so picturesque, of sordid love which is so romantic, of bathos which is so moving. Rodolphe and Mimi, Musette and Scunard, they wander throughout the gray streets of the Latin Quarter, finding refuge now in one attic, now in another, in their quaint costumes of Louis-Philippe, with their tears and their smiles happy-go-lucky and reckless. Who can resist them? It is only when you return to the book with a sounded judgment that you find how gross their pleasures were, how vulgar their minds, and you feel the utter worthlessness as artists and as human beings of that gay procession. Philip was enraptured. Don't you wish you were going to Paris instead of London? asked Miss Wilkinson, smiling at his enthusiasm. Now, even if I did, he answered. During the fortnight he had been back from Germany, there had been much discussion between himself and his uncle about his future. He had refused definitely to go to Oxford, 
and now that there was no chance of his getting scholarships, even Mr. Carey came to the conclusion that he could not afford it. His entire fortune has, had consisted of only 2,000 pounds, and though it had been invested in mortgages at 5%, he had not been able to live on the interest. It was now a little reduced. It would be absurd to spend 200 a year. The least he could live on at a university for three years at Oxford, which would lead him no nearer to earning his living. He was anxious to go straight to London. End of segment three. Chapter 33, Segment 4 Mrs. Carey thought there were only four professions for gentlemen. The army, the navy, the law, and the church. She had added medicine because her brother-in-law practiced it, but did not forget that in her youth no one ever considered the doctor a gentleman. The first two were out of the question, and Philip was firm in his refusal to be ordained. Only the law remained. The local doctor had suggested that many gentlemen now went in for engineering, but Mrs. Carey opposed the idea at once. I shouldn't like Philip to go into trade, she said. No, he must have a profession, answered the vicar. Why not make him a doctor, like his father? I should hate it, said Philip. Mrs. Carey was not sorry. The bar seemed out of the question since he was not going to Oxford for the Careys were under the impression that a degree was still necessary for success in that calling, and finally it was suggested that he should become article to a solicitor. They wrote to the family lawyer, Albert Nixon, who was co-executor of the Vicar of Blackstable for the late Henry Carey's estate, and asked him whether he would take Philip. In a day or two the answer came back that he had not a vacancy and was very much opposed to the whole scheme. The profession was greatly overcrowded, and without capital or connections, a man had small chance of becoming more than a managing clerk. He suggested, however, that Philip should become a chartered accountant. Neither the vicar nor his wife knew in the least what this was, and Philip had never heard of anyone being a chartered accountant. But another letter from the solicitor explained that the growth of modern businesses and the increase of companies had led to the formation of many firms of accountants to examine the books and put into the financial affairs of their clients an order which old-fashioned methods had lacked. Some years before, a royal charter had been obtained, and the profession was becoming every year more respectable, lucrative, and important. The chartered accountants whom Albert Nixon had employed for 30 years happened to have a vacancy for an articled pupil and would take Philip for a fee of 300 pounds. Half of this would be returned during the five years the articles lasted in the form of salary. The prospect was not exciting, but Philip felt that he must decide on something, and the thought of living in London overbalanced the slight shrinking he felt. The vicar of Blackstable wrote to ask Mr. Nixon whether it was a profession suited to a gentleman, and Mr. Nixon replied that, since the charter, men were going into it who had been to public schools and a university. Moreover, if Philip disliked the work, and after a year wished to leave, 
Herbert Carter, for that was the accountant's name, would return half the money paid for the articles. This settled it, and it was arranged that Philip should start work on the 15th of September. End of segment four. Chapter 33, Segment 5 I have a full month before me, said Philip, and then you go to freedom and I to bondage, returned Miss Wilkinson. Her holidays were to last six weeks, and she would be leaving Blackstable only a day or two before Philip. I wonder if we shall ever meet again, she said. I don't know why not. Oh, don't speak in that practical way. I never knew anyone so unsentimental. Philip reddened. He was afraid that Miss Wilkinson would think him a milksop. After all, she was a young woman, sometimes quite pretty, and he was getting on for twenty. It was absurd that they should talk of nothing but art and literature. He ought to make love to her. They had talked a good deal of love. There was the art student and the rubretta and there was the painter in whose family she had lived so long in Paris. He had asked her to sit for him, and had started to make love to her so violently that she was forced to invent excuses not to sit for him again. It was clear enough that Miss Wilkinson was used to attentions of that sort. She looked very nice now in a large straw hat. It was hot that afternoon, the hottest day they had had, and beads of sweat stood in a line on her upper lip. She called to mind Fräulein Cassili and Herr Sung. He had never thought of Cassili in an amorous way. She was exceedingly plain. But now, looking back, the affair seemed very romantic. He had a chance of romance, too. Miss Wilkinson was practically French, and that added zest to a possible adventure. When he thought of it at night in bed, or when he sat by himself in the garden reading a book, he was thrilled by it. But when he saw Miss Wilkinson, it seemed less picturesque. At all events, after what she had told him, she would not be surprised if he made love to her. He had a feeling that she must think it odd of him to make no sign. Perhaps it was only his fancy, but once or twice in the last day or two he had imagined himself that there was a suspicion of contempt in her eyes. "'A penny for your thoughts,' said Miss Wilkinson, looking at him with a smile. "'I'm not going to tell you,' he answered. He was thinking that he ought to kiss her there and then. He wondered if she expected him to do it. But after all, he didn't see how he could without any preliminary business at all. She would just think him mad, or she might slap his face. And perhaps she would complain to his uncle. He wondered how Herr Sung had started with Fräulein Cassili. It would be beastly if she told his uncle. He knew what his uncle was. He would tell the doctor and Josiah Graves. And he would look a perfect fool. End of segment five. Chapter 33, Segment 6 Aunt Louisa kept on saying that Miss Wilkinson was 37 if she was a day. He shuddered at the thought of ridicule he would be exposed to. They would say she was old enough to be his mother. Two pence for your thoughts, 
smiled Miss Wilkinson. I was thinking about you, he answered boldly. That, at all events, committed him to nothing. What were you thinking? Ah, now you want to know too much. Naughty boy, said Miss Wilkinson. There it was again. Whenever he had succeeded in working himself up, she said something which reminded him of the governess. She called him playfully a naughty boy when he did not sing his exercises to her satisfaction. This time he grew quite sulky. I wish you wouldn't treat me as if I were a child. Are you cross? Very. I didn't mean to. She put out her hand and he took it. Once or twice lately when they shook hands at night, he had fancied she slightly pressed his hand, but this time there was no doubt about it. He did not quite know what to say next. Here at last was his chance of an adventure, and he would be a fool not to take it. But it was a little ordinary, and he expected more glamour. He had read many descriptions of love, and he felt in himself none of that uprush of emotion which novelists described. He was not carried away off his feet in wave upon wave of passion, nor was Miss Wilkinson the ideal. He had often pictured to himself the great violet eyes and the alabaster skin of some lovely girl, and he had thought of himself burying his face in the rippling masses of her auburn hair. He could not imagine himself burying his face in Miss Wilkinson's hair. It always struck him as a little sticky. All the same, it would be very satisfactory to have an intrigue, and he thrilled with the legitimate pride he would enjoy in his conquest. He owed it to himself to seduce her. He made up his mind to kiss Miss Wilkinson. Not then, but in the evening. It would be easier in the dark, and after he had kissed her, the rest would follow. He would kiss her that very evening. He swore an oath to that effect. End of segment six. Chapter 33, Segment 7 He laid his plans. After supper, he suggested that they should take a stroll in the garden. Miss Wilkinson accepted, and they sauntered side by side. Philip was very nervous. He did not know why, but the conversation would not lead in the right direction. He had decided that the first thing to do was to put his arm round her waist. But he could not suddenly put his arm round her waist when she was talking of the regatta which was to be held next week. He led her artfully into the darkest parts of the garden. But having arrived there, his courage failed him. They sat on a bench, and he had really made up his mind that here was his opportunity when Miss Wilkinson said she was sure there were earwigs and insisted on moving. They walked round the garden once more and Philip promised himself he would take the plunge before they arrived at that bench again. But as they passed the house, they saw Mrs. Carey standing at the door. Hadn't you young people better come in? I'm sure the night air isn't good for you. Perhaps we better go in, said Philip. I don't want you to catch cold. He said it with a sigh of relief. He could attempt nothing more that night. 
but afterwards when he was alone in his room, he was furious with himself. He had been a perfect fool. He was certain that Miss Wilkinson expected him to kiss her, otherwise she wouldn't have come into the garden. She was always saying that only Frenchmen knew how to treat women. Philip had read French novels. If he had been a Frenchman, he would have seized her in his arms and told her passionately that he adored her. He would have pressed his lips on her neck. He did not know why Frenchmen always kissed ladies on the neck. He did not himself see anything so attractive in the nape of the neck. Of course, it was much easier for Frenchmen to do these things. The language was such an aid. Philip could never help feeling that to say passionate things in English sounded a little absurd. He wished now that he had never undertaken the siege of Miss Wilkinson's virtue. The first fortnight had been so jolly, and now he was wretched. But he was determined not to give in. He would never respect himself again if he did, and he made up his mind irrevocably that the next night he would kiss her without fail. End of segment seven. Chapter 33, Segment 8 Next day when he got up, he saw it was raining, and his first thought was that they would not be able to go into the garden that evening. He was in high spirits at breakfast. Miss Wilkinson sent Marianne in to say that she had a headache and would remain in bed. She did not come down till tea time, when she appeared in a becoming wrapper and a pale face, but she was quite recovered by supper and the meal was very cheerful. After prayer, she said she would go straight to bed, and she kissed Mrs. Carey. Then she turned to Philip. "'Good gracious!' she cried. "'I was just going to kiss you, too!' "'Why don't you?' he said. She laughed and held out her hand. She distinctly pressed his. The following day there was not a cloud in the sky, and the garden was sweet and fresh after the rain. Philip went down to the beach to bathe, and when he came home ate a magnificent dinner. They were having a tennis party at the vicarage in the afternoon, and Miss Wilkinson put on her best dress. She certainly knew how to wear clothes, and Philip could not help noticing how elegant she looked beside the curate's wife and the doctor's married daughter. There were two roses in her waistband. She sat in a garden chair by the side of the lawn, holding a red parasol over herself and the light on her face was very becoming. Philip was fond of tennis. He served well and, as he ran clumsily, played close to the net. Notwithstanding his club foot, he was quick, and it was difficult to get a ball past him. He was pleased because he won all his sets. At tea, he lay down at Miss Wilkinson's feet, hot and panting. Flannel suit you, she said. You look very nice this afternoon. He blushed with delight. I can honestly return the compliment. You look perfectly ravishing. She smiled and gave him a long look with her black eyes. After supper, he insisted that she should come out. Haven't you had enough exercise for one day? It'll be lovely in the garden tonight. The stars are all out. He was in high spirits. Do you know, Mrs. Carey has been scolding me on your account, said Miss Wilkinson. "'when they sauntered through the kitchen garden. "'She says I mustn't flirt with you. "'Have you been flirting with me? "'I hadn't noticed it. "'She was only joking. 
It was very unkind of you to refuse to kiss me last night. If you saw the look your uncle gave me when I said what I did, was that all that prevented you? I prefer to kiss people without witnesses. There are no witnesses now. Philip put his arm round her waist and kissed her lips. She only laughed a little and made no attempt to withdraw. It had come quite naturally. Philip was very proud of himself. He said he would, and he had. It was the easiest thing in the world. He wished he had done it before. He did it again. Oh, you mustn't, she said. Why not? Because I like it, she laughed. End of segment eight.